0: Uh, it is indeed a pleasure to be here with all of you. I just want to start off by saying I feel so at home, so welcomed, and there's many reasons for this. Obviously, your your kind reception of me already has made me feel very at home. But I also feel very at home uh, with you because I am literally very close to my own home. Uh, it is ironic that I travel 20 minutes to get to my home, uh, location where we uh, gather together as God's people, but I only traveled five minutes to get to you. So I feel very at home. Thank you for um, helping the gasoline budget in and, and our family <laughs> this morning. Also, I feel very at home here being in a, in a fellowship whose um, uh, name is Rosedale Bible, or short, RBC. I don't know if you guys refer to yourself as RBC, but I always love to think about you all as RBC, because that reminds me of where I cut my teeth spiritually, so to speak. I, I grew up in a Christian home where the gospel was presented and, and demonstrated in a very beautiful, attractive, and winsome way, um, but I don't feel like my life really took off spiritually until I became a young adult, and I started attending a church in Wisconsin called Racine Bible Church, Suddenly the Word of God was alive to me like never before. And I started out on a trajectory even then that changed my life, so it's always wonderful. It's always wonderful to come home to RBC. And then finally, I feel very at home here because this is the home of John Doobie. John is a close friend of mine who I have grown to appreciate more and more with every year that I've known him. He, he joins me with your youth group every summer at summer camp, and, and every year as I grow to know him, I appreciate him in my life. He's the real deal. He is someone who says things, not because he's repeating them, but because he is convinced that they are true, and that is someone in my life that I want to keep close to me um, wherever I go. So... Wherever John is, that's where I want to be. And so it's very good to be with you all today as well. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 16. So many opportunities we have here this morning to speak and to motivate our hearts in the ministry of evangelism. But I want to um, give you a little nugget of motivation from Luke 16. Surely we could have chosen Luke 15 as a great place to go to. But no, I'm going to go past Luke 15 to Luke 7 or 16 Luke 16. And and just real quick just to remind you why are we gathering here this morning? Why are we here? Why are you here this morning? Well, we're we're here because we need to be here, right? We live in a world that doesn't believe in God's word, doesn't live as though what God's word is true. We live in a world that, that breathes a different air, and we come here and gather with God's people to breathe spiritually. We, we come in from a week, perhaps, of, of working with unbelievers in order to remember things that are true, and to remind our hearts of what is eternally valuable, not just temporarily valuable. Secondly, we're coming here this morning specifically for an emphasis. And and I'll expand the emphasis out to this. We're coming here because we want to grow and strengthen the sense of eternity's importance in our hearts and in our lives. We wanna think about life from an eternal perspective. We don't want to just live our lives as though we live like everyone else. We want to live as though we know that there is an eternal life on the tail end of this life and we want to live accordingly. That is why we are here. We are here because we want to learn to use every opportunity we've been given, every resource we have at our disposal to gain friends for eternity. We don't want to waste our time with temporary friends. We want to seek friends that will be with us forever, that will come with us into eternity and into heaven with Christ. That's why we are here. And that is why I ask you to turn to this parable at the beginning of Luke 16. But I gotta warn you, this parable is a difficult one. Those are the exact words, actually, that are used to describe this parable by a commentator named J.C. Ryle. Uh, this is the perfect summation of what a parable is. It's something meant to irritate someone, as uh, Sinclair Ferguson would describe it. This is not an easy parable. This is perhaps the most difficult parable that is, uh, that is given to us in the Bible. As a matter of fact, just... Uh, For my own encouragement and my own joy and my own preparation last night while I was preparing some things for supper for my family, I uh, just flipped on uh, the Ligonier podcast and just wanted to see what good old R.C. Sproul had to say about Luke 16, just to encourage myself, motivate myself. And and I kid you not, he started out his sermon by saying, I wish today that I could be turning in our Bibles to Luke 17 because I do not want to teach on Luke 16. So I closed the... I closed the the app and was very encouraged to come to you today (laughs) with Luke 16. But I I think there is a purpose for the irritation that you will experience in this parable. I think there is a purpose behind the questions and the, 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 the frustrations that this parable will produce in your life. It's meant to irritate you, but it's meant to irritate you into an eternal mindset in in all of your life. So let's read, I'm gonna read Luke 16, beginning in verse one, all the way through verse nine. This is uh, the word of the Lord. He said also to his disciples, this is Jesus, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Shall I, since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. I have decided what I will do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth." so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Would you pray with me real quick? Our God in heaven who is sovereign and in control, who ordains all of our days and orchestrates all of our paths, who has set us in the very life situations that we are in, We pray that you, through your word today, would give us imagination to our faith, to see the opportunities that you have ordained in all of these places that you have put us. We pray that you would give us eternal, eternal mindset, a joy flowing in your gospel that sees more chances, more opportunities from the lives you've given us today. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. There is a scene from a movie that I truly enjoy. It is uh, from the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. It's always a favorite scene of mine. In this scene, Will Turner and Captain Jack Sparrow the, the two good guys of the show, although it's sometimes difficult to tell who's good, uh, these two are performing a ship heist. Their target, they are going to try to steal the very large and very difficult to maneuver dauntless. N- now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the ins and outs of Victorian shipping, I'll just clarify a few things for you. Uh, navigating a ship in those days was not as easy as just pushing a button or pulling a lever or turning a key you needed a whole crew of men to help you you know hoist sails position rudders all these things you needed a whole crew of men to get a massive ship moving like this that's why when their antagonist the the apparent villain at this moment of the show, uh, Captain Norrington, the British commander who is pursuing Captain Jack Sparrow, when he sees them attempting to steal this massive ship, he mutters to himself, that has to be the worst pirate I've ever seen. Well, that is until... Captain Norrington easily catches up to the Dauntless in the much quicker Interceptor, and as his entire crew of men jumps on board the Dauntless and takes it over, they suddenly realize that Captain Jack Sparrow and Will Turner have snuck aboard the Interceptor, which is now all ready to sail, and, and the Dauntless has been left mysteriously disabled. And the best part well, Captain Norrington is watching the ship sail away. Is his petty officer behind him mutters to himself. That has to be the best pirate I've ever seen. Oh, it was clever it was trickery it was shrewdness for sure. But what did that petty officer behind Captain Norrington mean when he said, that has to be the best pirate I've ever seen? Was he commending all of the ins and outs of pirating in those days? Was he saying, boy, when I grow up, what I want to be is a pirate? Was he saying, pirates are good, we are bad? Is that, is that what he is saying here? No. He's simply saying, I don't like that guy. I don't like his character, I don't like his occupation, but I gotta hand it to him, that was clever. I gotta hand it to him, he got me that time. It's admiration more than it's appreciation. And I'd tell you, I'd submit to you today that Jesus is telling you this heist story for a similar reason he has a similar specific conclusion that he wants to make to you. This parable is an irritating one indeed and his conclusion is perplexing indeed. What could Jesus possibly want us to take away from a dishonest manager? But, and I'll try to show you this, I I suspect he has a specific conclusion in mind that he wants us all to take and I suggest to you that the purpose he has is to make you more apt in how you live your day to day life, shrewd in everything you do to increase opportunities for gospel witness. It's an eternally minded day to day focus. That's what Jesus is after. So, we're going to break down this message into three parts, three simple parts. In part one, we're going to take in this whole sketchy parable at once. In part two, we're going to ask ourselves what Jesus' specific conclusion is. And then finally, in part three, we're going to ask how does Jesus want us to apply this parable specifically in our life? So, there it is part one, part two. Part three. Let's start with part one, and we'll 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 title this part a sketchy parable. Immediately in sixteen one, we're introduced to two characters in this sketchy parable. We're introduced to a rich absentee landowner, and a little bit of background information would be helpful here. Um, in those days, if you had wealth, it usually meant you had land. Land was in wealth, and usually in those days, if you had that kind of wealth. You didn't live on the land and work the land yourself, you had other tenant farmers live on the land and work the land for you. And you'd have this uh, pre-arranged, pre-harvest understanding of how much they would give you. So this could be a very lucrative business opportunity for these uh, tenant farmers, um, as long as the harvest worked out and and as long as you didn't have a sketchy uh, manager taking in money for the rich owner. This was kind of how it worked out. And this is where we're we're introduced to the other character, this sketchy employer. We see this man is a steward of some kind. He's a household manager. There's lots of responsibilities a household manager could have. Sometimes they're responsible for making sure the slaves are all taken care of, the family is fed, and so on and so forth. This household manager apparently has one job, he might have all of those others as well, but he's in charge of collecting the rent. Collecting the rent for the tenant farmers. And apparently there is this rumor going around that this man is sketchy. He is, as the word tells us, wasteful. And this is where we get the, the heading here, a sketchy parable. We, we first see that this is a, a, a sketchy uh, manager. That is who this is. We have all sorts of reasons for not liking him. He is apparently wasteful, he's self-indulgent, he is foolish, we don't know much about him, but from what we've seen of his character so far, all we can say is he's iffy, he's questionable. But this is not the only questionable or sketchy part of this parable, yet even in verse two we get something even more surprising. When, when, the, when the landowner realizes what this man is doing, how wasteful he is, what does he do? He doesn't beat him. He doesn't punish him. And most surprisingly enough to me, he doesn't immediately cut him off. I mean, if you knew that you had an employee that was cooking the books in his favor, wouldn't you like instantly cut him off? take away the, the company checkbook from him, right? Wouldn't you do that? No, this man gives him a while to cook the books even further in his own favor. But this does give us a chance to see this man's inner makeup and character, and perhaps that's why Jesus orchestrates the parable this way. In verse three, we see that he is exceedingly lazy, don't we? He is exceedingly self-consumed. He is motivated by one thing and one thing only, his benefit. He is afraid of his future future endeavors because he knows if he's out of this job, he's going to have a bad rap that's going to go with him wherever he goes, and that will lead him to only one job left, and that is digging. Digging. The the lowest spot on the the working totem pole, if you could say it that way. He is going to be digging. And notice what he says I'm I'm not strong enough to dig. And really, what he's saying there is not necessarily I am unable to dig, but I just don't want to dig. This would be shameful to him. He is too lazy for that. Notice, finally, in, in all of these words, in this, this like introspection that we're, we're given an inside scoop on here, we, we get no suggestion whatsoever from Jesus, from Luke, that what's chief on this man's heart, the high motivation of his soul, is not to get back in good with his master. There is no love that we see here between this man and his master at all. And so instead of love... Instead of humility, we see a scheming man here, don't we? Verses 5 through 8, we see the scheme unfold. and, And what exactly is the scheme that this man is attempting to pull off? He is attempting to play off this cultural obligation that was prevalent in the society that day where if you did something good for someone else, they would be culturally obligated to return the favor. It was a honor-shame culture. If you received graciousness, hospitality, kindness of any kind, you were entitled to repay those very same things to them. You were obligated. And look at what this man does with his master's resources. We have one servant that comes, one debtor that comes, verse 5 tells us, that owes a hundred measures of oil. Now in today's terms, that is about 850 gallons of oil. That is 150 olive trees worth of product. This is no small debt that this man has. This is a massive, a massive crop of debt that this man owes. Or to put it in um, a day laborer wages, this is about three years of a day laborer's wage. Notice what he says. Quickly, write 50, take 50% off. That's a year and a half off of wages. Or, or the, the debtor that comes with 100 measures of wheat, that's about 1,000 bushels or eight years of wages there. This is the yield of 100 acres of field. This is is the worth of about eight to 10 years of day labor. Quickly, take off 20%, he says, two years of labor. And and most likely, this is just a sampling of the big scheme that this dishonest manager was performing at this point. We, We notice in verse five, right, he calls all of his master's debtors to him. And then we're given two examples. I think it is most probable that more debtors were also given uh, similar deals as well. What is this man doing? This man is setting himself up for a massive payday of favors later on. This man is setting himself up for lifelong wealth. Endless job opportunities later on. This man has developed this beautiful system of social security for himself. This man has given himself an unlimited inheritance of future favors, hasn't he? He can go to one man, and as soon as he's burned that bridge thoroughly, he can just jump to another and to another and to another. This man has set himself up for the future And believe it or not, we haven't even gotten to the sketchy part of the parable yet. Here's where it really gets sketchy. Why? Because verse verse 8, what should we be expecting here? What should we expect the master to do with this unrighteous, dishonest servant servant we are expecting something like what Jesus spoke of in Luke 12: 46. We're expecting the master to come on a day that this dishonest servant is not expecting and cut him in pieces. He already gave him one chance, and now this servant is taking advantage of him again, or we're expecting what Jesus also predicted in Luke 2016, that he will come and destroy wicked tenants and give their vineyard to others. This is what we're expecting. This is what is just, this is what is right. But instead of all of that, what does the master do in verse eight? He commends him. He commends him. It's a word that refers to praises or expressing admiration for someone. Why, how? How could he possibly be commending this man? Suggestion. He is not saying, I really praise and appreciate how you ripped me off. He's not saying that. He's not commending that. He's not praising that. He is saying, I don't like you. I don't like your character. I don't like your occupation. I don't like what you've done. But I got to hand it to you. That was pretty clever i got to hand it to you. I've got to admire how you pulled that off right under my nose. You saw something that I didn't see. You saw opportunities where I saw nothing. You had vision, and I did not. And I've got to hand it to you. That sure was clever. This is what shrewdness is. It's a practical intelligence, it's a a prudence, it's a thoughtfulness, it's a sensibility, it's a wisdom about which you live your life. It's to act with cleverness, even if it is nefarious cleverness. It is to see opportunity where other people see nothing. That's shrewd. There are some people in this world that are shrewd with their opportunities, and they go far because of them. This is what shrewdness is. By the way, we understand this, right? I, I just, I gave you an illustration from a movie that we totally understand. We totally get the idea of being fascinated by people who have the brilliance to plan and pull things on other people. Every time we watch a crime show, every time we watch a bank robbery, we are fascinated, although in a little, a little bit of a shameful way, don't like him, but he's clever. He's shrewd. Shrewdness is brilliance. Shrewdness is a far-sightedness that can plan out the details to get what they want out of it. Uh, shrewdness takes advantage of present situations that other people wouldn't perhaps see or notice. This guy sees his whole future about to be taken away from him in a a matter of moments, and this causes him to live carefully and shrewdly with every opportunity he has in those few moments, and he is shrewd. Ironically, he went from being lazy, from being wasteful, to being sharp and careful and precise. All because his motivation changed, right? All because his life flashed before him in a moment and he saw how short it was. And he took full advantage. He had powerful attention and brilliance. But this parable is even more sketchy. It's not just sketchy because there's a sketchy man in it. It's not just sketchy because his activities are sketchy. It's not just sketchy because the the landowner praises him. What really is sketchy, what really is irritating, what really is frustrating is that Jesus himself praises this man. Jesus himself praises holds this man up as a model to his disciples. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you need to be like this. And that's sketchy. Because this guy's a criminal. Real quick, this is where we come to a quick you know, interpretive problem. There are two basic ways to interpret this parable. and. You've probably already figured out what my way is, but I'll just let you know what the other way is so we can walk through this. There's, there's two views of how to interpret this parable. How can Jesus, in the second half of verse 8 and verse 9, be using this parable? People interpret this parable in two basic ways to figure out why Jesus would use a parable like this as a model for his disciples The first way to interpret this parable is is more of a a positive way. This is a positive parable of a penitent uh, manager who has decided, because of his love for his master or his goodness of his own heart, he has decided to cut off his own commission, perhaps the, the ways in which he was ripping off these debtors before he has decided to cut himself out of the take, and that was that, that 50% and the 20% that he, he took off. He does all of this, why? To ingratiate himself to his master and to his master's debtors. He takes out his part. He is taking a financial hit, so to speak, so that his master looks good, or so that his uh, master's debtors are uh, favorable towards him, and there's various reasons for this positive view. Uh, one reason, the main reason being, well, why in the world would the manager commend him? It would make sense if he was doing something favorable towards the manager. Maybe that's why he is commending him. And especially, how in the world could Jesus be commending him? And the argument there is, uh, verse eight, dishonest manager is actually referring to his activities before all of this scheming and conniving. He was wasteful, he was dishonest, that's who he was. But then he, he changed because his life flashed before him in a moment. This is a positive, a parable of a penitent uh, manager who has changed and is seeking to maximize every opportunity he has to increase his favor. Now, that perhaps deals with a few of the problems, but I would suggest to you that it creates as many problems as it deals with. Matter of fact, I think it might even weaken, weaken the force of this parable. It's hard for me to escape the conclusion that this manager is ripping off his debtors. It's really hard. It seems as though Jesus and Luke want us to see this man as evil, as dishonest. For example, I think it's much much stronger to see that this manager is being called dishonest after all of this scheming. That is the order of the verses. He is wasteful and dishonest. He appears wasteful in the beginning because of his personal laziness, and then he is intentionally wasteful and dishonest because of personal ambition. Both of these things are at work in his heart. That doesn't, that doesn't have a problem. And notice the emphasis we have here in verse 5. It's his master's debtors that he's going to. And verse 4, his selfish motives are highlighted for us. And then verse 6, notice the speed in which he's making these deals. Quickly do this, quickly do this. This is a guy who's moving fast. It's incredibly hard to believe this man's acting in anyone's interests but his own. And this leads to the second option, which is the interpretive option I prefer. This is a negative parable that Jesus is using of an evil manager to make a specific conclusion. But why is the master commending him? Once again, it's, it's that idea of, I, I don't necessarily appreciate what you've done, but I gotta admire how you pulled it off. I gotta admire how your farsightedness truly impacted your everyday actions in this life. You saw your life, you saw your future, and that led to decisiveness, shrewdness, cleverness, and I did not see it coming. And why does Jesus want us to hear this parable? Well, I I suspect it's because he wants to irritate you as well. He wants to irritate you into a little soul-searching of your own. Do I have a similar situation? Is there a way in which I am not being shrewd? Is there a way in which I am being wasteful with opportunities that I have been given? Do do I have a, a shortness about my life that I should be thoughtful of? Is there an opportunity before me that perhaps nobody else can see, but but I can see through the power of the Spirit the opportunity that I have in my life? I would suggest he's trying to irritate you all the way to a conclusion. And what is that? irritating conclusion that Jesus is trying to drive us towards. We we see it there in in second half of verse 8 and verse 9 and this is the second part of our message this morning. This is the specific conclusion. Jesus is laser focused again. He's not praising everything about this man, but he is pr- uh, praising specific things in this man. What does Jesus want your takeaway to be from this dishonest manager? Number 1, He wants you, Christian, to learn from the shrewdness of evil men. He wants you to learn from the decisiveness, the brilliance, the strategizing of even evil men that surround us. The sons of this world who live for temporary treasures in this world, Jesus tells us, are more cunning are more shifty, are more clever in how they work for temporary, limited things than how we, sons of light, work for eternal things. Joys that can have eternal reverberations. More shrewd, Jesus tells us, these men are. He sees a deficiency in his followers in their use of their possessions, in their use of their time that he wants to change. The sons of this world have incredible ingenuity and he wants us to learn a thing or two about how they think. Not everything, but some things. This is what J.C. Ryle writes. It's not the dishonesty that uh, J.C. Ryle sees here that Jesus wants his disciples to mimic, but the end times-ness, the farsightedness sightedness. this is what J.C. Ryle writes in the commentary on Luke. Wicked as he was, he had an eye to the future. Disgraceful as his measures were, he provided well for himself. He did not sit still in idleness and see himself reduced to poverty without a struggle. He schemed and planned and contrived and boldly carried his plans into execution, and the result was that when he lost one home, he secured another. He had a far-sightedness about him. He had a goal and an effort to secure a future home. This is what Jesus is driving at. He wants us to See, see the wisdom, see the shrewdness of evil men and learn from them. Because how much more should we be shrewd? How should, much more should we be cunning? Because we have opportunities to impact eternal outcomes. Not just temporary ones. And that's the second conclusion in this specific conclusion that Jesus wants us to make. You, Christians should be more motivated than evil men. What kind of payday do they get versus the payday that you get? The sons of this world scheme so hard and work so long for what? For temporary paydays that only last as long as this life, for temporary joys that only last as long as this life, for temporary friendships, for temporary dwellings. Jesus in in Luke 6, 16 warns against treasuring up for yourselves treasures here on earth, right? Why should you not treasure things here on earth? Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't have things here on earth. But he's referring to this heart attitude. Why should you not put so much into the things of this earth? Why? Because things here leak. Treasures here evaporate. They rust. Don't seek values that have limited, limited value, like they are the highest value. There's moth, there's rust. All of these things are destroyed. These are temporary things. And they will all fail eventually. Actually, we see a a great illustration of this in Luke 16. If you jump down to Luke 16, 19, we see that there's this rich man. He had everything. He's clothed in purple. He's clothed in fine linen. He can feast whenever he wants on whatever he wants. But when he dies, all of that evaporates and fails him, doesn't it? And this is the, This is the the dagger of eternity in the heart of people. All of this will not go with me. Not one cent will go with me. And all I will wish for is a drip of water, of moisture on my tongue to relieve the agony of eternity. You can't bring a thing with you. Why are you working so hard for it? Why are you scheming so hard for it? This is the sons of this world and in contrast to that, the sons of the light have eternal dwellings, Jesus says. You should be more shrewd for eternal rewards, for eternal Joys for eternal friendships, for eternal dwelling places. Let me ask you a simple question. Does the way you you navigate your life on a day-to-day basis reflect a belief that this world doesn't truly last and that the next one truly does? Or do your eyes simply show an eye for this world? By your shrewdness with your time, with your resources, Jesus tells us we can actually increase our rewards. And and notice what he says there at the verse, at the end of verse 9: you can increase and create for yourself a heavenly welcoming party. Do you want to live for this world or for that? Ryle goes on to say this, it may well raise within us great searchings of heart. The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The zeal and pernacity of men of business encompassing sea and land to get earthly treasure may well reprove the slackness and indolence of believers about treasures in heaven Do you see what Ryle's saying here? We should be rebuked by how little we value eternal things. And we should be rebuked by how our life reflects an orientation around this world. Jesus' specific conclusion here is to seek treasures in heaven. And we know that a believer can increase their reward, their joy in heaven. This is what Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 18, verse 29. Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And, and Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You can increase something in eternal life. You can lose certain relationships now because they view you as someone who is their enemy but at the cost of that, you can gain friends for eternity at the same time. Jesus doesn't want us to be pirate-like necessarily, but he wants us to be pirate-like in the sense of how those pirates hunt for treasure. They're motivated because they have eternal things, eternal things to pursue. And this leads us to the last part of our, our sermon We'll call this a searching takeaway. How does Jesus want us to apply these words? He makes a few fascinating applications that perhaps we wouldn't suspect that any self-loving guest preacher might not uh, hint at. But this is where Jesus goes with this passage. And let me just warn you up front the application that Jesus has in mind is not necessarily evangelism. It's more about how you think about everything you have in your life, your money, your resources, your time, your grill in your backyard, and how you use those things for eternity. And this is, I think, the key to evangelism. It's a mindset about you. It's a sense of, of how short your life is and how long eternity is and the joy about you in saying, I want other people to join with me in that joy. And it's it's a searching application for sure because it deals with our wallets and that always makes us uncomfortable. But you can be sure, you can be sure that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that is why Jesus specifically says, what are you doing with your money? And how does your money reflect your angles, your heart, your life, your order? There's three applications here, three searching applications here. We'll we'll go through them uh, rather quickly, as quickly as we can. Uh, Application number one that Jesus wants you to take away from this parable is this. Learn to be shrewd with what you have while you still have only a little bit. Learn to be shrewd with your money. Learn to be wise with your resources. Well, it's still small. Because the heart that loves things just loves them more when they're larger. This is what Jesus says in in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Here's where I turn to the students in the room and say, did you know that today's message has more application for you than it does for your parents, perhaps? Right? Learn to be shrewd. Learn to be eternally minded in all things while you still have a little Generosity, shrewdness, the gift of financial giving is not something that you suddenly come upon when you're old and when you have lots of things. It is learned young, Jesus tells us. It is practiced in small ways. Learn to use your money for eternal aims while it's still little rather than when you grow rich. And Jesus has a second application for us. Live with eternal paybacks in mind. Live with eternal motivation in mind. Live with a sense of joy. What could I do today to increase joy for eternity? There is a similar motivation, perhaps, to the dishonest manager, right? But, but we don't live with a sense of fear, We live with that similar sense of motivation, of opportunity. Look at these opportunities that have been given to me and I have this small little chunk of time in which to do them. How can I shrewdly use my time now for eternity? Contemplate the remaining days of your life. Contemplate how very short they are in comparison to eternity and act accordingly Look at the motivation Jesus wants you to have in verse 11 and 12. If then you have not been faithful, if sorry, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another, who will give you that which is your own? Now it's a hard statement, and I would commend you to go home and read that five times and try to figure out exactly what's going on there, but did you notice, just simply, how there's two verses here that are parallel to one another. And they are meant to be parallel in order to help you interpret them together. And Jesus wants to give you motivation, motivation here, that faithfulness with what you have been given now gives rewards later that's all jesus is trying to say notice the parallelism right we have unrighteous wealth what is unrighteous wealth compared to here it's ca- compared to another's in verse 12 and by the way this is not a moral statement about money Money, by the way, is something that Jesus is calling you to be faithful with, to be diligent with, to work hard with. No, this is a statement, this unrighteous wealth is a statement of the temporary quality of money. It is limited. You should think of it as not really your own, temporary, belonging to another's, because you're going to give it to another's when you pass on. These things are worldly, they're temporary, they don't last. That's what Proverbs 27:24 tells us. Riches do not last forever. 2 Peter 3 10 says, It will all burn up in the end. It is another's. We are stewards of everything we have been given. Matter of fact, this is also what the Word of God tells us again and again. 1 Timothy 6 7. We brought nothing into this world and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of it. Psalm 24 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell in. We simply are managers of another's resource. Money is not completely evil. It is something we're called to be faithful with. And a matter of fact, in verse 9, it's something we're called to use to make friends for eternity with. And what's the payoff? What's the payoff for faithfulness? The true. True riches. And notice, in parallel, how Jesus describes true riches, things that last, treasures in heaven. How does Jesus describe these things? They're not another's, but in verse 12, they are your own. Jesus is suggesting something here about the quality of eternal dwellings and eternal rewards. They can never be taken away. They are yours permanently. Unrighteous wealth will only last for as long as you last. But these are yours. You you are entrusted with temporary things, a stewardship And these things are not worth comparing to the permanent possession that you will be rewarded for how you used these things. You should be motivated to be shrewd because you have been entrusted with temporary things to use and manipulate to build eternal treasures. Now right here, let me be very clear. When we talk about eternal treasures, what are we talking about? We're talking about rewards, sure, responsibilities. We see that in Luke 18. But don't you think Jesus is mainly talking about people, treasures in people that have come with you into eternity? Jim Elliott was a young missionary to Ecuador back in the 1950s. He had a young wife and a, believe it or not, younger daughter. And as a 28-year-old man was martyred by Indians that he was seeking to reach before he ever spoke one word of the gospel to them. But he went to these Indians in South America with a desire to be used for however long God would have him in order to win friends for eternity. This is what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These things, these temporary things are just that and The true fool is the one who seeks to hold on to these things as if they are eternal. But you're no fool to give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Be motivated by that. The final searching application here is have more than a balance of money and God in your life. Notice, Jesus doesn't want you to make a safe application here in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus comes to the end of this parable, and he's saying, now listen, I don't want you to make the safe conclusion that I just need to be more balanced in my life. I need to serve God and balance my use of money. That's not what Jesus wants. What is Jesus after in your life? He wants you to love God and use money to love God. And that's the point of this whole entire parable. How are you using your money to love God and to seek the things that God loves Notice the danger of money there in verse 13. It is personified as a potential master who will enslave you. Jesus is saying that there there will be a time if you live your life trying to balance God and money, God and work, God and all these other things. There will be a time when either money or God will be slighted in preference of the other. You can't just balance God and money in your life. God demands to be loved above all. It's not just that God wants you to be a faithful steward of your resources. I'm sure, for example, the rich young man was a faithful steward of his resources. But where did he go wrong? He had no love or need for Jesus in his life. You need to love God supremely. Matter of fact, the application here is use God to love money. Use, no, sorry, use money to love God. That would be a bad application. (laughs) Uh, Right, use money to love God or else money will use you to get you away from God. Jesus obviously isn't saying you should give up all of your money to the poor, it seems as though to me he is pressing us to be good financial stewards. Why? So that we can use our resources to seek friends for eternity. You could, you could apply it to a financial stewardship class, right? How, how can I make myself most financially free, fo- most financially nimble, in order to have maximum ability, maximum flexibility to seek the things that are eternal and not be bound by temporary things. Use your money to love God. Use your money to love God. Verse nine is a powerful image to me. And I hope it is to you too. Jesus tells us here, that we can be shrewd with our resources, with unrighteous wealth, and this shrewdness will result in people, they, receiving you into eternity. You ever think about that? You can think about this on a, on a mission scale, right? What far off people group will I never meet but because of my financial provision, stewardship, because of all of that, they hear the gospel and someday they will receive me into heaven because of my carefulness. You can think about it that way. But you could also think about it here locally, right? What people could I bring with me all the way to the grace of Christ and find in heaven because of that grace in Christ, and be met by in heaven, that I had no no imagination of ever meeting in heaven. You could ask yourself today, how can I use my income to further opportunities for the gospel here at RBC and and abroad? How can I use my resources? How can I use my backyard, my pool, my grill, my job, anything that I have in order to find opportunities to share the good news of Jesus? How can I use all of these things to win friends for eternity? That's what Jesus wants us to be. He wants us to be shrewd, shrewd in everything we do free of any other master in this life so that we can serve him and him alone. What are you living for? What are you scheming for? What are you praying for? Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this message. I pray that you would help us to, to search our own minds and hearts and see where we can be more free to seek your kingdom and not be so bound to this world. Pray that you'd help us to be evangelistic in our hearts first, to rejoice in the gospel in our hearts first, and to be eagerly seeking such ways to tell others about you as well. we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.